Father, I ask that you would work through my words to encourage your people. And even those who might be on the sidelines in a spiritual sense, that they have not jumped in. They do not fully trust you. They do not yet entrust themselves to you. May they see your faithfulness displayed in the lives of these men. As we look at the examples of Abel, Enoch, and Noah, Father, I pray that you would encourage us to imitate them and by so doing inherit the promises. Please encourage your people today by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let he who has an ear to hear, hear. We are approaching two years now in the epistle to the Hebrews, and I hope you are not bored of this book. It is uh, amazing in every sense of the word. We've taken a few breaks along the way. We've slowed down in a few places to focus on some important phrases, paragraphs here and there. We actually diverted from Hebrews for several weeks, focusing on Romans chapter 1. Uh, Paul's description of the gospel. So in a sense, I feel behind on, on one level uh, that we're not done with it yet. And so several months ago, as I was praying and thinking about how we were to tackle Hebrews 11, I thought, well, we could, we could move quickly through Hebrews 11 so that we could resume with chapter 12 and get to uh, more the line of the author's thinking there. And I, I tried to put myself in your shoes as people who have endured through these two years of preaching and thought, well, to not let them experience the, the 
passages that we're probably more familiar with would not be fair. So we're going to spend some time looking at each of these people. Not one sermon per person, unfortunately, that would take too long. But today we'll cover three. And at this point, I want to say a few things by way of introduction, just really a question This, I think, will help you see what the author is doing by mentioning these men and women. The question is this, why begin with Abel? Why begin with Abel? He's not the first person, as far as Genesis is concerned, to show faith. In fact, both Adam and Eve showed some evidence of having faith or hope in God. Nor is Abel very easy to show, as far as the text in Genesis is concerned, that he had faith. His faith isn't mentioned explicitly in Genesis. And further, he is not a head of any covenant. He's not like Noah, even though he mentions Noah. He's not like Abraham, even though he mentions Abraham. And he's not like Moses or David, someone that God showed up to specifically and enacted a new covenant with. As far as the text is concerned, we don't have any of that. So why start with Abel? There are at least three reasons. And this is important for us to understand what all of chapter 11 is about. In beginning with Abel, the author shows that faith is a covenant transcending unifier of the people of God. That's very important. Let me say it again. Faith in God is a covenant transcending unifier of the people of God. What I mean by that is that regardless of what covenant you were under, whether it was the Sinaitic covenant with the giving of the law, or if you were David and you'd received the Davidic covenant, or if you were under some covenant of works with Adam, whatever it was, whatever God had going on at the time, faith was the underlying substructure of your relationship with God. And Abel is the perfect person to demonstrate that. In a sense, Abel was under nothing but curse. As far as the text of Genesis is concerned, Adam and Eve received the curse. And the only hope they had, as far as promises were concerned, was a promise embedded in the curse of the serpent. I will put enmity between you and your offspring and her offspring, and he will crush your head while you bruise his heel. So if they had some understanding, that's all they had was a promise embedded in a curse. But through faith, Abel is commended, accepted, justified, and he will inherit the promises, even the ones that had not been made yet, with us. The second reason I think he starts with Abel is... This flavor of blood sacrifice, this has been a major theme in the book of Hebrews if you've been paying attention. The purification of the temple, 
and the people, not just here on earth, but even in heaven. The heavenly temple needs to be purified by a blood offering, and the people who will be in the heavenly temple need to be purified by a blood offering. So in some sense, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Abel is the first person that we see other than God, if you want to read it in there with his killing of the animal to clothe Adam and Eve, Abel is the first one that is explicitly stated in Genesis as having offered a blood sacrifice. The early church fathers actually saw this, that, that perhaps that is why he's commended in this way. More on that later, though. I think the third reason that he starts with Abel is the one that is most important for our purposes and why it's most important for the author of Hebrews. And it is this. Abel is the first that we know of, as far as the text is concerned, who suffered unjustly. Think about it. You need to pay attention to this. There's no evidence, as far as the text in Genesis is concerned, that Adam or Eve suffered unjustly. In fact, they received a ton of mercy from God. Cain, even, as far as the text in Genesis is concerned, while he does receive punishment, he receives mercy from God. But Abel suffers unjustly and dies. In a sense, Abel functions as a, as a representative head of the people of God. St. Augustine actually looked back to this instant between Cain and Abel and said, this is the very beginning of the city of man and the city of God, where the city of man always wars against the city of God and tries to choke it out and kill it. The people of God, from the beginning, are oppressed by the wickedness of the world and the vileness of our enemy. And so for the author of Hebrews, he's, he's underscoring the example of Abel to say, look at him. Look at how he endured. He suffered unjustly, even to death. Yet he became an heir of the promises through faith. And so let's look at it, beginning in verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And the claim here that we can tie in with the rest of chapter 11 is that the praiseworthiness of Abel's life was due to faith. He begins each analysis of each of these patriarchs by saying, by faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. It was always by faith, as we talked about a few weeks ago. For the author, it is so basic that it almost goes without saying that pleasing God must be by faith. So if we find any situation in the Bible, this is how the author's mind is working as he's writing this. If we find any situation in the Bible where anyone is said to have pleased God... It therefore must have been by faith. Because you can't please God in any other way. It must have been by faith. Even though Genesis does not mention faith explicitly for Abel. Because he pleased God. Because God accepted his sacrifice. Therefore, it must have been by faith. That's how the author is working theologically through the history 
So we know this story from a young age. We see it depicted in cartoons or even movies about the, the history of the Bible. There, there Cain is and there Abel is and he's offering his sacrifice and Cain is offering his. And the smoke of Abel's is going up maybe and Cain's is going downward. And even though the nature of blood sacrifice was important, it was not that he offered better things on the altar. That's not what made his offering more acceptable to God. You've got to pay attention to the text. No, the offering itself was better precisely and perhaps only because it was offered in faith. Let me say that again. The offering itself was better precisely because and perhaps only because it was offered in faith. It's not that offering fruits of the field is bad. And in fact, Moses commands such offerings when we finally get to Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. No, the author understands theologically the real difference. Because of who God is, he is only really pleased or accepts those who approach him in faith. And many people, even in the Old Testament, are condemned by, in their offering of blood sacrifices because they're not doing so in faith. This is so important for us. Maybe to illustrate this, we'll ask a question. If Cain had approached God in faith, would he have asked his brother for a lamb to offer as well? Maybe. Maybe in addition to what he was offering... But when God rebukes Cain in the text of Genesis, he does not say, just offer blood sacrifices like Abel. You didn't give me the first fruits. You should have given me the first fruits. Cain gave me his best lamb. You gave me your worst gourd. You know, whatever. That's not how God rebukes him. And here we see the key text in Genesis 4, 5 through 7. But for Cain, his offering, he had... For Cain and his offering, he, meaning God, had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. We can reason this way. Because God accepted the offering of Abel, then Abel must have been offering his through faith. And because God did not accept Cain's offering, it means that it was not done in faith. And what proves this, as far as the Genesis text is concerned, is Cain's anger. He's furious. That God would dare not accept his offering. Does that sound like faith to you? Does that sound like entrusting your whole self to God? And there's an application right here for us to pay attention to. Entitlement is the opposite of faith. Entitlement or insisting on your rights. Being heard. Being regarded, being respected, 
in the sense that you feel that you should be respected, standing on your own foot and believing that you have ground to stand on. That is the opposite of faith. Because if Cain had understood his sinfulness, set aside the idea of blood sacrifice or not blood sacrifice, he would have been broken and responded in repentance, even as God calls him to repentance. God only accepts that which originates from faith. That's the point the author makes himself explicitly here in a few verses. So this is a massive conclusion for us. Whereas in Genesis 4 it says, God says to Cain, if you do well, for the author of Hebrews, he interprets that for us theologically by saying doing things from faith. Is that how you define doing good things? This is a debate that theology students, seminary students like to have. Can a non-Christian do anything good? It's an important question. For the author of Hebrews, he sets that aside and says, Further, if you, even as a Christian, don't do it from faith in God, it's unacceptable to him. There Cain is, offering his fruits of the field on the altar, burning it. He believes in God. He talks to God. And he's offering some sense of offering, burning it in a sense, for God to receive. That's belief in some sense, but it is not faith. It is not the kind of faith that pleases God. It is not entrusting himself to him. And the author of Hebrews says that if what you do, if you don't do anything, whatever it is, eating, drinking, work, singing to God, serving in the church, whatever it is, if it is not from faith, it's unacceptable. And be careful, lest in your heart you have the same response of Cain. How dare you not accept that? Through which, verse 4 again, he offered more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. As he says of Noah, which we'll get to in verse 7, he became an heir of righteousness, of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so we should not separate, this is a caution, and this is the caution that James gives us. We should not separate faith from the result of faith. Okay, For the author of Hebrews and for Moses in Genesis, they're they're almost interchangeable. Faith itself and the result of faith in our works. If you do well versus if you do not do well. Doing well is the same sense of having faith in what you're doing. Faith in God, deep trust in God's faithfulness, will always work itself out in the way you live your life. Say that again. Faith in God, deep trust in God's future faithfulness, will always work itself out into the way you live your life. You can't just have your faith over here, hidden and unto yourself, something that is private and personal, And then live like the world the rest of the time or maybe just when everyone is paying attention. 
Real deep trust in God will always change the way you live. And how is it that God commends Abel as righteous? That's his claim, through which he was commended as righteousness. Well, he gives us the answer. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So God accepts Abel's sacrifice. And by so doing, he commends Abel. By, by, by the fact that God says, this is acceptable to me, he commends Abel as having faith, and therefore, Abel receives righteousness, that is, through faith. But I thought that the blood of bulls and goats can't please God in the most ultimate sense. The blood of bulls and goats can't really remove sins, and that is exactly the point that the author is making. He even says so in chapter 10, verse 4. For God to accept Abel's sacrifice meant that it was enjoined. That's a big word that you need to have. Enjoined or, or mixed with or birthed out of faith. And the author says this curious statement. Through faith, he still speaks. This is interesting because as, the, as far as the Genesis text go, Abel doesn't say a word. There's no record of Abel saying anything in Genesis. Genesis 4, 8 through 10. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Abel doesn't say a word. Only in a metaphorical sense does his blood speak for God to bring vengeance and justice. But the author of Hebrews says, And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. What is he saying here? How does he speak? And what does he say to us? There are at least two things happening here. One is what is obvious from the Genesis text. You could call it a couple of different things. The vindication of the righteous and the righteousness of God. Or the vindication of those who trust and the trustworthiness of God. Or the vindication of those who have faith in God and the faithfulness of God. As David says in Psalm 58... Mankind will surely say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. And this is not an isolated theme. For all the saints in the Old Testament, they had a sense that eventually God would vindicate the righteous. And vindicate those who had trusted in Him. What about Abel? We can bring the rest of, the cha- of chapter 11 to bear on this. Though commended through his faith, Abel died in faith, not having received the things promised. In offering sacrifices with faith in God's future faithfulness, he shows that he sought something better than the best of this life. 
But having seen the things promised, he greeted them from afar. Abel sought a better country, that is, a heavenly one, and God has prepared it for him. But was Abel fully vindicated? Has he been fully vindicated yet? No. No, his blood still speaks. Even as John says in the Revelation to John, for all those who have died for the word, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's not just Abel. It's all those who have died in faith and suffered unjustly. Their blood cries out for God to do something. God had mercy on Cain, even. That's the startling thing when you read it. It's not not God's harshness. It's God's mercy towards Cain. So this kind of leaves the the courtroom in heaven kind of aghast that that God has not meted out full retribution yet. That God did not instantly kill Adam and Eve when they ate of the fruit. That's God's justice. So He's showing mercy. He's being patient and He's waiting and waiting and putting off the day that is coming on and on and on and on. And and yet His righteousness calls to be vindicated and it will. And you and I are involved in this sense that if we have trusted in God even through our sin, we will be vindicated. Amen? Faith or deep trust in the faithfulness of God, looks at the worst that the devil, the world, and the wicked can do, even as they saw us in two. And yet we place confidence in God and say, God will vindicate the righteous. And indeed, this is what Jesus says will happen in Matthew 23. He says to the Pharisees that all the blood from righteous Abel to all the martyrs that have come after will fall on the heads of those who have opposed Jesus. Is that your confidence? We are so quick to feel abandoned by God when things go badly for us. It is not uncommon that I see things like this. God, where are you? When things are particularly dark. What if Abel, as his own brother, is beating him to death and his life drains out of him? What thoughts do you think are running through his mind as he's left for dead in the field through his final breaths? As the psalmist says, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Into your hands I commit my spirit. 
The second thing I think that is happening here is that Abel is speaking, and it seems to refer to us. His blood, his testimony, his witness is speaking across the millennia to us, telling us how we ought to endure. Even as he suffers unjustly, even as he comes under the oppression of the enemy, in a sense, he's opposed by wickedness and sin, personified in his brother Cain, and he's killed. His testimony, his witness, speaks to us. And these two strands together show what this speaking means. Abel's hope is yet unfulfilled in the fullest sense. But Abel was commended because of his faith and will therefore inherit the promises because of who God is. He is in his very nature true, trustworthy, faithful, just, and righteous. Therefore, God will not let these things go on forever. Time is running short. If we're not living our lives in a sense of the time running short because God's patience, while it stands, it's still there and it is great and abundance, but eventually it will be spent and God will vindicate the righteous. This is what one of the commentators says. This deep hope in the character of God, as I've been explaining, exhibits the solid faith that is the connection for receiving recompense by God. So share the faith of Abel. That's the point the author is making. Believe in God like Abel did. Even though he died and did not receive the promises, his example of trusting God and being accepted by God because of faith proves that Abel himself will receive all of the promises with us. And so will you if you endure and share his faith, even as you suffer unjustly. Verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Here's another example of reading your Bible carefully asking questions and believing that the Bible has the answers and demanding of yourself the time and care needed to find those answers. Here is the entire text from Genesis chapter 5 regarding Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The end. That's it. That's all we have. And yet the author of Hebrews looks with theological eyes and deep understanding of God's purposes throughout all of Scripture and tells us this. He was commended as having pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so it was by faith that he was taken up. It wasn't because Enoch was just some really upstanding guy. 
He probably was because he walked with the Lord or he pleased God. But the author of Hebrews looks and understands with deep theological awareness that the reason Enoch pleased God, the reason he was taken, was because of his faith. The reason he even lived a righteous life, if we can read that into the text in Genesis, is because of his faith. And in the context of Genesis 5, this really stands out because if you know, if you're familiar with Genesis 5, it's just that so-and-so lived this many years, had this many kids, and then he died. So-and-so lived this many years, had this many kids, and then he died. It's death, 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 death. And so Enoch is this, is this really clear, really special exception. And he is the exception because of faith. And from this text in Genesis, the author makes several insightful observations. Number one, he was taken so that he would not see death. Number two, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Number three, pleasing God or drawing near in this text in Hebrews 11 equals walked with God in the Hebrew Genesis text. So what does that mean? Obedience. What what does it mean to draw near to God and to walk with God? It certainly means obedience. And it certainly means fellowship. But even more foundationally, faith. Because even as the author himself says in verses 1 and 2, any praiseworthiness in any of these people's lives was due to faith. And then he gives us this theological interjection because without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And what is the reward? The fullness or the the bringing to fruition of drawing near to God. So he is taken, so that the desires of his heart, in a sense, are fulfilled in being near to God. That is the reward. And this is what the author is saying, that Enoch became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So what then do we make of this? The author of Hebrews says, All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen these things, they greeted them from afar. How can we apply that to Enoch? In Enoch's case, though he did not die like the other men in this chapter, and who is to say exactly how the story of Enoch will end, But his earthly life ended, just like the rest, without receiving all the promises. This is almost a complete 180 from the life of Abel. And you need to see this. He puts them right next to each other. Abel had faith, just like Enoch had faith. Abel died, suffering unjustly, but Enoch was taken into heaven so that he would not see death. And yet the author, applying verse 13 to him as well, says that Enoch himself has not yet received the promises. Do you believe that? Full stop. Do you believe that? 
This is very important. This isn't just a theological aside. That Enoch himself, who is in a sense in the presence of God, so that he would not see death because he pleased God, has not yet received the fullness of the promises. They all seek a better country. Isn't he already there? That's why you have to bring the conclusion. The last verse in chapter 11. Verses 39 and 40. God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, and you can put Enoch's name in here. That apart from us, Enoch should not be made perfect. Even though he's there. He's in the presence of God. He he skipped over death. And yet, not the full promises. Why? Because nothing less than Christ in all his glory will do. Just like Simeon in the temple. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Enoch didn't get to see it yet. And the consummation of all things has not yet Happened. The assembly of the firstborn in heaven in festial gathering in white robes around the throne that hasn't happened yet. And until that happens, all the promises of God have not yet been fully fulfilled. Is that your view of heaven? And I want to take this to a point of personal application here. So there Enoch is in heaven in some sense. We're not exactly sure how it all works, but there he is, skipped over death. And not the point, not the full promise. All of heaven's pleasures, but no Christ in all his glory with all his people. What about you? If you could have all of heaven, all of its pleasures, but no Christ, would you want to stay? Would you be okay with that? Would you say, this is enough. This is all the promises I really care about. And here's the painful truth behind that. The way you live your life answers that question for you. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or to apply it more closely to the experience of the hearers, people that the author of Hebrews wrote this to. What if you got all the promises of the Old Testament fulfilled? What if you could go back the old way and get the land, get the temple, get the kingship, get all of it, but no Christ? Would that be enough for you? Are you willing to abandon Christ for the sake of all that? And the point the author of Hebrews is making, if you leave Christ, you don't get any of the promises. One. And two, all of the promises point to Him. And in light of Him, in comparison to Him, the city, the mansions, the streets of gold, the gate, the throne itself is bland. 
when we compare it to him. Do you share the same? Think about this. The angels themselves have a sense of dissatisfaction with what they have. This is a holy dissatisfaction that they yearn to look into what God is doing in us. And they're there. They're around the throne, sinless, perceiving God's glory, worshiping Him, and yet yearning to see what God is doing in you and me through redemption. That's what Enoch is experiencing now as he waits for the full promises to be fulfilled in us. And the point the author of Hebrews is making is, because he had faith, he will be there with us too. Receiving the fullness of all the promises. Even in the presence of God, without the fullness of his redemption being accomplished, is not enough for your heart forever. Think about that. Let me say it again. Even in the presence of God, but without the fullness of his redemption being accomplished, is not enough for your heart forever. And it is not enough for the angel's heart. We need to see God's grace at work in this redemptive work that he has done. This glorious salvation. He has made known to us His salvation. That is what we're created to see and behold and love. Not just glory. Not just perfection. Not just heaven and streets and sinlessness and painlessness. Grace. Mercy. Cross. Blood. Lamb. Lion. This is what Jesus prays in John 17. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And this is why the Spirit himself and the bride and the angels and perhaps even Enoch can yearn for the coming of the day of the Lord and say, even so, come. So, Enoch is an example for us today, is what William Lane says about Enoch. Christians must replicate in their experience the enjoyment of the pleasures of the Lord. And this is the obvious point from all the context of Hebrews, is that the consummation of all things is this fullest enjoyment of God, and it hasn't happened yet. This isn't it. We're not home yet. So share in the faith of Enoch. Draw near to God through faith. Trust in Him. Regardless of how good your life is, you can know that it's not yet here. Verse 7 now. By faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he, was, by this he condemned the world and be, became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So, we've seen the sacrifice and suffering of Abel. We've seen the seeking and believing and the being taken up of Enoch. So what insight into the life of faith might we gain 
in addition to those things by looking at the life of Noah. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's not just giving us example after example after example to make the exact same point. He's giving us windows or facets into this beautiful reality that is faith. And through each of these men and women's examples, he shows us a little bit more about what the life of faith is. So what are we to see in the life of Noah? just pause right here and I want to do a little game, a word association game. If, if I were to say David, what would you say? There you go. Okay, very good. If I were to say Sinai, you would say Moses, Ten Commandments. Okay, that was a very good one. If I were to say, uh, if I were to say Peter, you would say, okay, there you go. Very good. So if I were to say faith, though, what would you say? Okay, yeah, that's kind of an analog, perhaps, maybe we have that contrast in scripture. What about this? Looking closely at the text, what about fear? Does fear come to your mind as an association with the word faith? Because the author of Hebrews in this text does that. He essentially interposes them. Look at it closely. By faith... Being warned by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark. He is not saying that fear is faith, but in a sense, faith is that posture of reverence and awe and concern and seriousness concerning events yet unseen that, that motivates him to obedience. Why fear? Because God warned him. In faith, he believed God's warning and his commands concerning the ark, and thus he saved his whole household. It wasn't that just he believed that God exists. It wasn't just that he believed, oh yeah, this, this, this whole world's going to end in some sense in the future. We'll try to live our lives like we can, and maybe it will come true, maybe it won't. He had deep Reverence, awe, and fear at the fact that God had made known to him his plan and given him specific instructions to prepare for that. If you're paying attention, you know what I'm saying about you and me. Do you have faith in God concerning things yet unseen? Do you live your life with Respect to those events unseen that God has made clear, that He has given us by His Word. He has told us that they will, in fact, take place. Do you have that reverent fear that defines your life as it did Noah's life? Are you walking in obedience to the very commands that God has given to you and me in preparation for the things yet unseen that will, in fact, take place? Husbands, fathers, in all your building of your career, and the building of your legacy, and the building of your home, and the building of your family, have you guided your own family to board the ark which has already been built in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? It's there. The door is yet open. Have you led your family in? 
Or are you building something else outside? God will not destroy the world again by the flood. But the world will be utterly undone by fire. And even the heavens themselves will pass away with a roar as they are dissolved. We either believe that or we don't. We either trust that God is true, He's faithful, He's right, and we respond with reverent fear to live our lives concerning those events yet unseen. It really does change your life. Noah was convinced, is what the commentators say here. Noah was convinced of the certain occurrence of the events which God had disclosed, but which yet lay in the unseen future. Faith conferred upon those events a reality so substantial that he did not hesitate to act, meaning Noah did not hesitate to act. And he behaved as though they were already beginning to happen. There was an urgency. It was as if he was running out of time and he spent all of his life preparing for that. Noah appears to have recognized that the word of God is performative. It sets, meaning the word of God, sets in motion circumstances that will eventuate in the promised reality. Is that us? Do you view the word of God like that? That because he has said it, it will definitely be so. It's not a question of whether or not God is true. God is true. And so because he has said it, it will be so. By this, he condemned the world. It's not a very positive thing to say. If you just take it by itself. By this, Noah condemned the world. That's not something that you want to clap about, necessarily. What is he saying? The point is that that Noah's faith leading to obedience was the very thing that saved his family from the doom of the world. It's happening at the same time. It's the same event. The flood. And whereas on one case the people disbelieved and were destroyed, in the other case Noah believed and in reverent fear constructed the ark and was saved. It was the same event, and it was their response to the same event that determined whether or not they were destroyed or saved. His righteous life, Noah's righteous life, cast into severe contrast the wickedness of the world. It's like Jesus' parable of the master and the vineyard. He leaves the vineyard in the hands of these servants to tend it and to gain a produce and make it function well, and then he sends messengers to check on them. And the workers kill the messengers. The master's coming back one way or another. That's going to happen. The master will return, and their behavior will determine how the master will respond to them. The messengers who were mistreated and killed by the servants will receive commendation, and the servants who killed them will be destroyed. But the master's coming back. That's not changing. It's the same event. So Noah lived 
in reverent fear, he obeyed and he saved himself and his family. And then we receive this. Instead of focusing on Noah's death, which we have have Abel's death and the end of Enoch's life, in a sense, the end of his earthly life, but, but the author of Hebrews makes no reference to Noah's physical death. Instead, we get this. And he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And this is so significant. Consider this, because he trusted in the Lord, he inherited righteousness, of which the salvation of his family from the flood was but a preview. Do you get that? That his faith in God, his trust in God, in the salvation of his family through the ark and during the flood and the construction of the ark was just a preview of the salvation that is to come. Because one way or another, the wicked died just like Everyone else, and so did Noah. This is the very complaint that the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, how the wicked die just like the righteous. The righteous die just like the wicked. There's almost no difference. But will God vindicate the righteous or not? Noah died. So what of faith? We're left, if this is it, we're left with that question. And it is a good question. If this is all there is, then what's the point of faith? And for this, to frame this, we need to go back to what the author of Hebrews himself said in chapter 10. He says, but my righteous one will live by faith. If you understand God's character and His righteousness, then you understand that there must be a return a resurrection, a recompense, a final day of judgment, of reward. We see this previewed in Abel's life and his blood crying out for vindication. Something's got to happen. We see this in Enoch's life. It's previewed that the righteous will in some sense be rewarded eternally for their trust in God. And in Noah, the mere mention that he became an heir, an heir of righteousness, an heir of all the promises. Do you think that post-flood world was the fulfillment of all God's promises for his people? I mean, there's, there's no more houses, no more buildings. they got to build everything from scratch. They, they spent all that time living in the ark, and they're probably sick of it, but that's the only shelter they had. So they got to still live in it, and they've got all these animals to take care of. It wasn't a peaceful existence. You think that is the promise that God has for his righteous one? It's not. But previewed in Noah saving himself and his family through the ark, what God is doing for all of his people is previewed. That he is creating a new heavens and a new earth. Even as all of the old is dissolved and burned and undone. No, God had prepared something better for us. That apart from us, Noah should not be made perfect. And the author is so bold to assert that through this faith, Noah knew. He knew. How? How? 
Even as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It is not a matter of fringe faith or a blind leap that these things will take place. God would have to be a liar and all of his most basic promises would have to be broken. And the essence of his character would have to be inverted and made meaningless if that day is not coming. If that day is not real and is not set in a sense and is going to happen, then life is meaningless. God is a liar and we have no hope. We wait for that day, brothers and sisters. And here's the big conclusion. Faith looks forward. Yes, we look back to the cross. Yes, that is our sure foundation. But faith in action looks forward to events yet unseen. With full assurance that God will do these things because the righteous will live by faith. And you can be more sure and more confident in the return of Christ and His making all things new and His raising those who are eagerly waiting for Him from the dead than you are right now of what you had for breakfast. You can be more sure of God fulfilling these promises and vindicating the righteous and ensuring that the righteous will live then you can be sure that the sun will rise tomorrow. May we show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that we may not become sluggish but imitators of those who through faith inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Give us this deep trust in you. Do not let us hold tightly to the things of this life that make us resist giving ourselves over to you and trusting ourselves fully to you. Help us see that Even if we try, it's as if we were holding our belongings and possessions as the flood even starts to rise while the ark is there, who is Christ, with the door wide open for us to enter in. Through faith, Father, make us imitators of these who have gone before. In Jesus' name, amen.